0: Well, I think this is probably going to be our last session on Ruth. We're going to finish it up today. And a little recap on what's going on. Ruth listens to her mother-in-law and lays at the feet of Boaz. And as we mentioned, this was a sign of a wedding proposal. And we kind of mentioned that uh, Boaz had a rude awakening when he woke up and saw the lady sitting there. And talked about the, the ultimate rude awakening was Adam. He woke up and found himself married (laughs) to a woman who didn't exist the day before. God always puts surprises in your path, and we need to be alert to what they are. So Boaz is the redeemer, but he knows there's another one closer than him in line, so he has to kind of work that out. Ruth goes home, and her mother-in-law wants to know, are you able to put your past behind her, behind you? Are you still Malon's widow, or are you now Boaz's fiance? And Ruth basically says, yes, I was able to put it behind me. Boaz is working it out. And Naomi reassures her that he's going to work it out in your favor. And we left off with uh, chapter 3, verse 18, says, Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happened, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And we mentioned that since Boaz is a type of Christ, we close with the truth that sometimes we have to wait for God to work. Now, I don't know about you, but I seem to, doesn't seem to happen right away for me. Anybody God works like right away? God always makes us wait. Patience, right? It's a dangerous prayer. We used to, when our kids were little, we would go to the store and they would always want everything they saw. And we would say to them, well, if you can wait for an answer, It might be yes, but if you need an answer right this second, the answer is no, and they hated that. But it made them wait, and if they were patient and they waited, sometimes we gave it to them. So God allows us the same thing. If you want an answer right now, God's gonna say no, but if you're gonna wait and develop patience, then God may come through for you. Well, he will come through for you. It's just in his timing, in his manner. He didn't forget about you. God didn't forget about you. And sometimes, you know, we're still waiting, right? It doesn't tell us how long it took for Boaz to complete this. And we don't never know how long God's going to take to complete something in our life. And sometimes, like Ruth, all we can do is wait. Nothing you can do to to expedite the situation. God is working it out in his time. Ruth really couldn't help him out, nor did he ask for her help. When God works things out, He doesn't ask for our help. He wants us to wait. Because every time we kinda get interrupted and we try to interrupt God and what He's doing, it never works out well. God says, wait, I'll handle it. Sometimes in waiting for us is the hardest part. So now we come to the final chapter in in chapter four and one commentary notes that the book of Ruth starts with three funerals and ends with a wedding. Now, not all of life's problems end this, this nice and this Hallmark movie type of thing, but God does tell us that he writes the last chapter in your life. And we don't need to be afraid of what's coming. It's, it's the Bible says, don't think about the future. you plan for it, but you don't worry about it. Because God's got it in control, and all of the worrying and things we go through doesn't change anything. So God wants us to be at peace and let him worry about the future. So to understand the transaction that Boaz is doing, we need to know a little Jewish law behind it. God set up this redeemer law in order to preserve the name and the property of the person and the families in Israel. God owed the land. He didn't want the land to be exploited by rich people buying it all up. What would happen is normally people would come in with money and just start buying up all the property. And God says, no, I'm going to put this redeemer kinsman law into practice. I want the property to stay with the family, with the clan. And this would lead to the abuse of the widows and the families of the guy who died. If someone died and there was a widow there, someone would scoop in to buy the property up. And God says, no, here's how I want it to work. There has to be somebody in the same clan that's going to redeem that property because I want it to stay in the family. The law made sure that the man's name did not die and his property stayed within the clan and not sold to anyone outside of his immediate family, his clan. So the redemption was always a part of God providing for his people. And the word redeemed literally means set free by paying a price. When the Bible says that we are believers and we have been redeemed, it means we were set free by someone paying a price. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Titus 2.14, Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we have been redeemed. We were bought back with a price. And what was the price? Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's the price. The penalty for sin was death. And for us to be bought back means that somebody had to die in our place. Verse 23 goes on and says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God bought us back. The Bible says you were bought with a price, therefore you're no longer your own. You belong to Christ. We become the slave of what God wants us to do. Another aspect of being a redeemer is that he had to be related to the one being redeemed. Obviously, you couldn't be buying it outside the clan. You had to be related to the person you're redeeming it from. One commentary says that Christ is related to us as a human being. He wasn't God God incarnate. He came down as a person, as a man. How else could he relate to us unless he was a person in physical form? He had to become a man in order to be related to us. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. In order to be redeemed, the Redeemer had to be able to pay the right price for the property as well. Ruth and Naomi were obviously widows, they could not afford to buy it back. Boaz had the means to buy the property back. None of us has the ability to buy our own redemption. Someone needs to buy it back for us. Someone who has the means to buy it back, and the only person that can do that was Christ. First Peter 1.18 says, For we you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Psalm forty five or forty-nine five says. Why should I fear when the evil days come, when the wicked deceivers surround me? Those who put their trust in wealth and boast of great riches? No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. God paid the price. We didn't pay it. We got in for free, but it cost God everything. And lastly, the Redeemer had to want to redeem in order to do it. You didn't have to do it if you didn't want to. You could ignore that. And so Boaz wants to make sure that the person in front of him doesn't want to redeem it because Boaz wanted to. Christ wants to redeem you. He's not sitting back saying, yeah, no, I don't want to redeem. He wants to redeem you. He's already paid the price. The question is, what are we doing about that? Have we been redeemed? So chapter four, verse one says, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. In these days, the gate was like the business office of the town. You did all your transactions there, anything legal you did at the city gate. Most official business was done there. So Boaz goes and waits because he wants to do business. He wants to do a legal transaction, like a courthouse. Verse one continues, when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz says, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Another indication of God's providence. What are the odds this one guy is walking past this gate at the same time Boaz is sitting there? He wasn't out to do business, he was just taking a stroll. And he just happened to walk by at the right time for Boaz to see him. And within distance so that Boaz could know who he was. Again, God's providence is always mentioned in Ruth. If you read Esther, the word God isn't mentioned one time in Esther, but you see every aspect of that book was God's providence. And just like it is for Ruth, God is setting everything up to get his way. God sent Christ, God allowed Christ to be crucified. In fact, the Bible says that God did the crucifying. If you read Isaiah 53, It says God did it. God set everything up in order to redeem us at just the right time. Romans 5, 6 says, you see, at just the right time when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God's timing is perfect for every situation. God arranges things on his timetable, which is always the right time. It's always late for us, but God's timing is perfect. So Boaz calls him over. He calls him over, hey friend, come over here. Verse two says, Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and so they did. If you remember the Old Testament law, God says you ought to have two or three witnesses for every transaction or any kind of legal thing. Boaz calls 10. So there's no doubt in the community that what is happening is legal. And I wrote here, our lives should be lived in such a manner that we now become witnesses of what Christ has done and there shouldn't be any doubt in anyone's mind that we have been transformed. There's a saying that says, if being a Christian were a crime, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? Do people around you know without a doubt that you're a Christian? Or do you live like everybody else, just kind of blend in, you know different? The Bible calls us to stand out. The Bible calls, well, the Bible calls you peculiar, so. I didn't write it. You need to be different from everybody else, and the world will call you peculiar. Ruth 4:3 says, "Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you do redeem it, if you want to redeem it, do so." but if you will not tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to redeem it except you, and I am next in line." Now, I've read that a lot of times, i never noticed this before. Notice what he's saying and what he's not saying. He's setting the guy up. (laughs) He's setting the guy up. He does not mention Ruth at all. He mentions only the land and then, you know, land, I'll, I'll take the land. You know, the Bible tells us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Boaz was being wise in allowing God to work and get what he wanted God to accomplish. And I think he's setting up the conversation to get exactly what he wants. He pitches the property, just the property. He's probably pretty confident that the guy's gonna want the property. Who wouldn't wanna buy property if you had the property? Ability to do so, and verse verse four says, "I will redeem it." The other guy says, "Sure, why not? It's property. Just cost me some money. Easy decision. I'll just buy the property up." But now that he's made the decision to buy the property, then Boaz throws in the caveat. Verse five, then Boaz says, "On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabite, you acquire the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead." of the dead with his property. So he takes the property off the table by the guy agreeing to it. But then he says, oh, by the way, along with the land, you get two dependents that you need to take care of. And it's gonna cost you more than just the land. Now it doesn't tell us this, but I think he's separating the two items so that the focus was no longer on the land because the guy already said yes to the land. Now the entire focus is on Ruth and Naomi. So the only thing he's thinking about now is Ruth. Well, if I buy the property, I've got to take Ruth, I've got to take the mother-in-law. If I ask you to focus on two things at once, most guys can't do that, right? <laughs> We're one, one thing. Women have the ability to do two more things at once, but guys are just, you know, one thing. If you ask me to focus on two things, I'm going to lose it. And I think he wants this guy to focus on one thing, Ruth. What it's going to cost to take the land. Taking the land out of the conversation by asking about it first, and now laying this little tidbit out, always thinking about is the complications of taking Ruth with it. Verse 6 says, At this the kinsman redeemer said, Well, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. What's his reasoning for not doing it? It's gonna endanger his his money. It's gonna cost him to do it. If he marries Ruth and he has a son with Ruth, guess what happens? Not only does the property he's buying partly go to that son, all of his current property also goes to Ruth's son if they have a son. So not only does he lose whatever he's buying, he's gonna lose what he has. If, if they have a child together. In other words, he was afraid of the personal cost to him. And thinking, instead of thinking how God can use this situation, he was being pragmatic in his choice. This is an easy financial decision. I'm going to make it the way I think will help me most. And, that's, and a lot of people do that in businesses. Whatever the best financial thing for me to do is, I'm going to do it. But as Christians, we always need to put God first in our decision because the decision we make might not be a logical, pragmatic decision, but something that God is calling us to do. And I think Boaz understood what it was gonna cost him. He's willing to pay the price. He's willing to suffer because he wants what God wants. Salvation to us is free. We receive eternal life solely on the grace of God. However, once we commit ourselves to Christ, there's going to be a cost to follow. Matthew 16, 24 says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. John 16, 2. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. There's a cost. There's a cost to following Christ. Salvation's free. You get it? Because you trust Christ. But now that you trust Christ, there's going to be a cost to follow him. The first guy didn't want to pay the cost. Didn't want to receive God's benefit, didn't want to receive God's blessing, because we're gonna find out what the blessing was for Ruth and this guy's in Boaz's heritage. He didn't want to pay the price in order to follow Christ. The rich young ruler, same thing. There's a cost. Jesus says, sell your possessions, give it to the poor. And what's the Bible say? Matthew 19, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He didn't want the personal cost. He didn't want to have eternal life because it may cost him more than he's willing to give. So the Redeemer here rejected the offer, not willing to endure whatever cost he might impose upon him. Ruth four, Ruth 4, verse 7. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property become, to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to another. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. What he's doing, he's forfeiting his right to the land. He's saying, you know, it's all yours, you can have it. And ultimately, what he's forfeiting is, he's forfeiting his position in the line of Jesus. Because Ruth and Boaz are ancestors to Jesus. Imagine what a blessing that is. Can you imagine... Yeah, my great-grandson, that's Jesus. (laughs) Wow. He's he's forfeiting what God was gonna do for him in the future in order to maintain what he had today. He was making the business decision, not a spiritual decision. I wrote down here, there's gonna be many times in a believer's life or a church's life where we need to make a spiritual decision and not a business decision. It may look good on paper. But maybe God calls you to do something that doesn't look good on paper. We left Florida to come back to Pennsylvania. Strike one, okay? (laughs) Look at the weather. (laughs) Had a great house. Great job. Obviously great weather. Nice pay. Everything on paper says, (laughs) don't go back but God says go back, and so he came back. When God asks you to tithe, every business model tells you it's an unnecessary expense, don't do it, because how can 90% go further than 100%? It's mathematically impossible, but it does. Why would missionaries leave the comfort of their home in the States and go to a third world country where there's no running water, Nothing. Why would they do that? Because God tells them to make a, serious, a spiritual decision, not a business decision. One author says, God does not always call us to the normal or the logical. The point is there's gonna be a cost of following God and we need to be ready to pay it. Now we're reading, we're reading and we're studying the book Not a Fan on Wednesday nights. And I read this excerpt the other week about the cost. I'll read it to you here. It says, John Orvos was a church leader in Romania during the communist era. When he spoke to the Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary, he talked about it was like, quote, during communism, many of us preached, and people came at the end of a service, and they said, I have decided to become a Christian. And we told them, it's good that you want to become a Christian, but we'd like to tell you about the price that you have to pay why don't you reconsider what you want to do because many things can happen to you. You can lose and you can lose big. John said a high percentage of them chose to take a part in a three-month class to better understand the decision they were making. The pastor goes on and says, at the end of this period, many participants declared their desire to be baptized. And typically I would respond, it's really nice that you want to become a Christian. But when you give your testimony, there will be informers here who will jot your name down. Tomorrow the problems will start. Count the cost. Christianity is not easy. It's not cheap. You can be demoted. You can lose your job. You can lose your friends. You can lose your neighbors. You can lose your kids. You can even lose your own life. He wanted the people to get to a place where following Jesus was so important to them that if they lost everything, it would still be worth it. And he concludes, it says, it's a lot different than the invitation to which many of us responded. At the end of his sermon, the preacher says something like this. I want everyone to bow their heads, close their eyes. Sound familiar? I want you to become a Christian, then just raise your hand. But Jesus makes it clear that you need to count the cost. Right now, we're living in blessed times in this country. But if things go south, are we ready to face that? The Redeemer counted the cost and turned it down. After this, this guy is never mentioned again in scripture. Boaz was willing to endure the cost because he loved Ruth. Christ was willing to endure the cross because he loved us. uh, Ruth 4.9, then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the, deed of the dead on his property. With that na- and that name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Boaz was proud to announce to everyone there that he was gonna marry Ruth. He's proud of her. It means something when someone says they're proud of you. How many times do you tell your kids, I'm proud of you? I'm proud to be in his husband. I'm proud to be my kid's dad. Hebrews 2.11 says, both the one who makes men holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy, us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. You know what? Jesus is proud of you. He's proud of you. Boaz even brings up her past. Verse 10. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow. He's letting everybody know, I know her past. I know where she came from. I know everything about her. And you know what? I still want her. Think about God saying that about you. I know, their, I know your past. I know everything you've ever done. And I know everything you're going to do. And I still want you. He wasn't hiding the fact of who she was. He wasn't trying to deceive everyone around him. Oh, I'm just marrying this girl. He wanted everyone to know that he knew about her and he's accepting her as she is. He's accepting her life because in her past she can't change it. There's a lot of things in our life we can't change. And yet God picks you. Boaz was saying, yep, I know she's a Moabitess, I, yeah, I know she's a widow, and I know she married, was married to a guy that she never should have married in the first place. Because remember, Jewish law says, uh-uh, can't marry outside the Jewish faith. So Ruth was bringing absolutely nothing to the table in this, in this transaction. Nothing she could offer. And she received the grace of Boaz. We don't deserve anything from God. We bring nothing to the table for that transaction for God to save us. And God recognizes who we are, who we're going to be, and yet he chooses us, which continues to amaze me. Everything says that she didn't deserve Boaz's favor, but she received it. And everything in the world tells us that we don't deserve God's favor, but we receive it. Romans 3.10, there was no one righteous, not even one. You know, I like that. Paul is repeating himself because I think he anticipates someone asking the question, but what about so-and-so? There's no one righteous. Well, what about not even one? There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They all together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So all the people we think are good people but don't know Christ Paul says no one does good we may think they do good but in God's eyes the Bible says nobody does good and they all together have become worthless in and of themselves and yet God chooses to love them John 15 16 one of my favorite verses you did not choose me Jesus says I chose you Ruth 4.11 says, Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make, this, make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. In this prayer and the celebration, the witnesses were already accepting her in the Jewish family. She was considered by them now to be a true Israelite, all to receive God's blessings like every other Israelite. When we receive Christ's forgiveness, we also receive all of God's blessings. Ephesians 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And they prayed that she was become like Rachel and Leah. Think about that. What an awesome honor. They held these two women in high esteem. They were the father and mother of the 12 tribes. And they said, we want you to be just like her. We want to honor you like we honor her. And even though she was a Moabitess, they said, we don't care. We're accepting you as you are. In fact, we want you to be elevated to the same level as Rachel and Leah. Ruth 4.11 says, may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah. They wanted her name to be synonymous with being a prominent mother in God's kingdom, in God's economy. Ephrathah means fruitful. They wanted her to be fruitful. And as we know, having children was a blessing from God as Israel determined it. So fruitful for them would also mean be blessed. By God. Ephrathah is also the place where Rachel was buried. And more importantly, it's the place where Jesus would be born. Micah 5 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Ruth followed Naomi to learn about Naomi's God that she had heard about because she trusted that that God would provide for her and protect her. Ruth 4.13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. Notice her progression. She went from foreigner to maidservant to maiden to wife and then to old age. God had a plan for her all along. You know, we say that God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life all the way through old age. And God sustains you through every walk of life. Bad walks, good walks, hard walks, difficult times. God sustains you through all of that. Now this didn't happen overnight and sometimes God's blessings and provisions don't happen overnight. Ruth had to persevere through each step. We don't know how long, what timeline it was from Ruth chapter one to Ruth chapter four. We don't know if it was years. We don't know. Ruth had to persevere through each step trusting that God would complete what he was gonna do. Anywhere along that line, she could have said, you know what, I'm I'm done. God hasn't done anything for me yet. I'm not going to follow him. She trusted him through everything. She still had to glean. She still had to do all those things. And yet she trusted God to finish the good work. Ruth 4.15, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. God had given back to Naomi what was taken from her. Not only was Ruth blessed, but now Naomi. She has a grandson. Up until this point, she had no chance of having a grandson. And being a grandparent, grandkids are awesome. Spoil them, send them home. it's funny, your kids, when they, when they get to be young parents, they're very careful of what they, you know, feed them. You know, we want them to eat the, inert, the best, healthiest food. We don't want them eating junk and stuff. And we got that, and we, you know, okay, that's fine. We'll feed them stuff. It comes to the point now where it's like, we don't care. <laughs> Whatever they'll eat for you is good. You say, great. They walk in the door, first words out of their mouth, snack, snack. So we're cool with that. Grandkids can fill your life. Grandson filled Naomi's life. God was blessing her for bringing Ruth back. She had the opposite of when she arrived. Remember what happened in Ruth chapter 1. Don't, don't call me Naomi, she told him. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now God has given her back what she lost. Her life was now full, not empty. David wrote Psalm 30 many years after this, but I think Ruth and Naomi would say it applies to them. Psalm 30, verse 11. You turn my wailing, or mourning, into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. That my heart may sing to you and not be silent, O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever. We don't know how long this took for Ruth. But no matter how long it took, God was faithful through every step to bring about his perfect will in both of their lives. And it will do the same for us if we wait for God's timing. Would you stand as we close this morning? Just like the author says, go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment. You already know the cost, and it will cost you. In our country, it costs very little. most it costs is maybe embarrassment or losing some friends. And if we can't pay that, then we're never going to be able to pay when it comes to be difficult. But in the end, Christ is worth it. The Bible says our life is but a mist or a vapor. In other words, it goes past fast. And the older you are, the faster it goes. And so when this life is over, we have yet eternity to face. And that's kind of what we're waiting for. We'll endure whatever happens here for the 70, 80, however many years that God gives us. We'll go through the struggles, we'll go through the hardships because we know that, man, when that is over, I'm gonna have eternity, eternity in paradise. The song says, when we've been dead 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Can you imagine being alive for 10,000 years? and then 10,000 after that, and then 10,000 after that, never to end. So the Bible says, what we suffer now are light and difficult things while we wait in anticipation for what's coming. If you're here this morning, you've never committed your life to Christ and you think that the cost is too much, I'm here to tell you, the cost we pay now is nothing compared to the dividend you receive when this life is over. It is a great, great trade. If you wanna make that decision, the Bible says that Jesus stands at the door of your heart and he knocks, he wants you to open the door for him. He's not gonna open it for you. He's not gonna kick it down. He wants you to make the choice. Boaz made the choice to marry Ruth. He didn't have to. He chose to do it. And we have to choose to allow Christ in our life. If you've never done that, or you can't remember a time when you've done that in your life, then that's why you're here this morning, because God is calling you to make that choice now. If that's you and you've never made it, and you want to make that decision today, you want to commit your life to Christ, knowing what it's going to cost in the future, possibly, but you know what the dividends are at the end. I want you to raise your hand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, thank you. Thank you for the sacrifice you made for me and for each one of us here. And we were anything but good when you made that sacrifice. You knew all of us how sinful we were and how sinful we will continue to be. And yet you you died for me, you died for us. And I have eternal life now because of the sacrifice you made and my trust in you for that. And I pray for each person here that well, that God, you would really minister that truth to them. Allow them to understand what they have in Jesus and your ability to help them through difficult situations. We may struggle here, Lord, but we know your word says you'll get us through everything. Every difficult situation you will bring us through. So, Lord, I pray your blessings upon them. Allow us to celebrate with family and friends this weekend. And remember why we're celebrating, Lord. We're able to celebrate because people died for us. Lord, I pray your blessings upon this church, churches everywhere, and allow them to experience the manifold blessings of God as well. Lord, we commit ourselves to you and to that end in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.